and welcome to this week's Battleground podcast interview. Our guest this week is Mark Urban, who many of you will know as the BBC Newsnight diplomatic editor and one of the most insightful journalists in the business. For much of his career, he specialised in defence. He's someone who combines real knowledge of the battlefield from his coverage of numerous wars. I first met Mark back in uh, 1994 during the siege of Sarajevo. And uh, alongside that, he's got a very sharp analytical ability. He's also been a soldier himself as a young lieutenant in the tank regiment. Yeah, and infuriatingly, Patrick, Mark is also a highly regarded military historian. Is there no end to this man's talents? Covering some of the same ground as myself with histories of the rifles in Wellington's wars. And most recently, a history of the birth and early years of the parachute regiment. It's called Red Devils, and it's a cracker. I gave it five stars in my review in The Telegraph. I started off by asking Mark what led him to the subject. Uh, Well, thank you very much, Patrick, uh, and for the kind words about the book. Um, Well, I'm going to now attempt to deny in the face of all the evidence in your next few questions that I'm a sort of airborne groupie or or, or that I'm even particularly interested in airborne forces. But uh, undoubtedly, uh, they exert a considerable popular fascination. And this book, Red Devils, was uh, an unusual one in the sense that the initiative came from uh, the Air Assault Museum and Penguin Books, who who basically had dis- jointly decided, I don't know by what method, I wasn't part of the project then, that they wanted a book, that it was about time someone reconsidered the history of the regiment in the Second World War and its founding. And in particular, kind of how you create, I mean, Patrick, you know as well as anyone from your experiences reporting w- what a tribal organisation the British Army is. And they wanted something that would look at how a new tribe was created in terms of its beliefs and its symbols and its shamans or whatever you want to call them, its thought leaders uh, and all the rest of it. And uh, I think that's why they came to me rather than uh, because I have on occasion done embeds with airborne forces, including, as I think we'll talk about in a bit, uh, Soviet army airborne forces in Afghanistan. And I think because I'd written some other books about the rifles in um, the Peninsula Wars, Wellington's rifles, the Fusiliers in the American War of Independence, the tank guys, one particular battalion going through the Second World War. I think they thought, well, look, this guy does what I call organizational biography. I think you could also call the parachute regiment story a kind of military startup in the sense of, you know, they were formed and... Lots of other organizations that were formed in the war and tried to sort of themselves as special. And some of them, I think we would think of as special, like the Long Range Desert Group, didn't survive the war. They performed very effectively in wartime. But when the, the, the time came for peace, they were uh, they vanished from the order of battle. So what was it that made the Parachute Regiment such a successful uh, start up in those terms uh, that grew and grew until in in the European theatre it had fourteen battalions and yeah, two airborne divisions and all this sort of stuff and what made that a success so that 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 was the aim of the book and that's why I think they came to me to do it because I really like as I say uh, the thing about fighting units is as you'll also know Patrick uh, the dividing line between a sort of baying mob 
uh, fleeing by any means they can lay their hands on, and, and a highly effective fighting unit is often not as great as, as many people may suppose. And those sort of magic questions about leadership and spirit and cohesion among fighting soldiers are certainly one of the things I think over, over the decades that I've been writing that I've found most interesting. You make it sound rather dry, Mark, when actually I found it full of human interest, full of insights into that great question of what makes a soldier a soldier, as well as the things you've just mentioned, ethos, leadership, spirit, etc. And it's all illustrated with some memorable sketches of some fascinating characters. Now, the parachute regiment survived the war, even if the fashion for actually parachuting into action didn't. Uh, and instead, they became airborne forces delivered by aircraft of various descriptions. And every Western army has specialized airborne units, including, of course, the Russians who kicked off Putin's so-called special military operation with an airborne assault on Kiev airport. Tell us about that and what happened there. Yeah. Well, let's uh, backtrack one moment and remember that airborne was a kind of house with two chambers in the war. There was the parachutists and then when there were glider guys. And of course, the glider brigades were part of those airborne divisions. And my word, I mean, in terms of not fancying a particular way of going to war, I think a controlled crash in a glider on some objective in Normandy or, or, or the Rhine crossing was I think among the most terrifying things you can do. Now, luckily for the people in in the airborne divisions that did that, something fundamental changed in the late 1940s and 50s, which, of course, was the widespread adoption of helicopters, which made it far easier to drop people in a controlled and pinpoint way. Still pretty vulnerable, mind. And it was a helicopter assault which the Russians chose to use to try and take this key airport northwest of Kiev, uh, Hostomel, uh, or Gostomel, if you want the more Russian pronunciation. And the, the importance of this place, I mean, it was symbolically important for, because it was a big plant for Antonov uh, aircraft manufacturers. But obviously, in terms of its tactical and operational importance to the Russian operation, it was at a point far enough from the centre of Kiev to be on the sort of outer ring roads, as it were, and to allow them, they thought, to accelerate the operation into the Ukrainian capital with a ground column racing up from Belarus as they did so. And in a sense that it has strong echoes of some of the Second World War operations, that you'd have this so-called coup de main to take this key airfield on the outskirts of Kiev and then the ground column would link up with them. And once you had the air, airport, obviously you could fly in supplies and fly out casualties and all the other things you needed to do to support the drive on Kiev. Well, they, they went in there uh, on the first morning of the war. I think some of the most dramatic footage we saw from the first few days of the Russian invasion was these images taken by locals near the airport of assault helicopters going in in numbers, I mean dozens, and columns of black smoke rising from the airfield perimeter. And some of the aircraft that were coming in were shot down, 
which also produced pretty, uh, you know, shocking footage. Obviously, one can imagine that the people inside them, the airborne soldiers inside them, uh, generally died uh, when when those helicopters were shot down. Basically, they got about they got a weak battalion, I think, onto the airfield that morning, uh, about four. 400, 450 Russian soldiers. And they pretty much immediately were involved in fighting with Ukrainian territorial defence who'd been sent there. I think they had some inkling that it might be a Russian objective. And a battle began over Hostomel. And um, the outcome was in doubt for a day or two. But essentially, the Russians did succeed in capturing it. And you can argue that it was, in casualty terms, not excessively costly uh, as an objective when they took it. But over the days that followed, it became a sort of rather a bit bit of a sort of poisoned possession for them because the Ukrainian artillery uh, all pretty quickly registered on Hostomel and the troops that were there ended up being pretty heavily pounded and the ground forces, although they did, they took a bit longer than the Russians thought they would. They did get there. But then, of course, the wider attempt to take Kiev failed. And indeed, the whole idea that you could go there with 20, 30,000 troops and surround a city of three or four million uh, with, a, with an outer perimeter, if you were going to surround it, of you know 30 kilometers or something like that, was exposed as a kind of delusion. And, and something which, if there was any significant level of resistance from the Ukrainians, and of course there was, would be quite impossible. Now, since then, we've moved forward a year plus uh, to the absolute opposite of a coup de main. Uh, we're stuck into a long slogging match on the ground, semi-static attritional warfare. I'm talking about Bakhmut, of course. Uh, what do you think is going on there? And what do you think the objectives of both sides are? Um, yeah, I mean, I think... I think that's one of the real eye-openers, isn't it? For you and I, having studied conflict in the 20th century, uh, we always understood uh, in 20th century wars, First World War, Second World War, uh, between states, that the big killer was artillery. I mean, you look at some of the campaign histories that were done, and you you see figures of 80% even of casualties in armies being, being caused by artillery. And here we are, you know... Several decades after the end of World War II, with another major war in Europe, in which that horrible truth seems to have been reaffirmed in the most emphatic way, that artillery, again, is the big killer. So much so that we have a, a kind of World War I-style moonscape in parts of eastern Ukraine where the pounding by artillery over months and months and months has forced the defending troops on each side into a sort of troglodyte existence in trench lines and deep bunkers and completely pulverised the landscape. Now, coming back to your question about, uh, you know, what is the point? I mean, I think in a sense it's, it's easier to divine from the point of view of the Ukrainians, in the sense that evidently they're trying not to concede another inch of their country and they're trying to defend their country. That is the point of standing in Bakhmut and, and numerous other places where they have been, uh, as it were, pinned in recent months. Um, and I think if one wants to be a bit more strategic about it, you can say that there appears to have been a deliberate strategy to use some of the kind of hard luck uh, forces 
in the Ukrainian order of battle, territorial defence brigades, these types of units, to do that grim business of holding the line while they prepare other forces to mount some kind of uh, large-scale counterattack in the coming weeks. And that might, they might do that elsewhere, for example, to the south in Zaporizhia is, a, is thought of by many people as a favourite axis to push down from there towards the Sea of Azov. And if you're successful, cut the Russian land bridge, so-called, to Crimea and cut the Russian invasion uh, force in two in that sense. So I think the Ukrainian objective in this and enduring and suffering these casualties in Bakhmut is quite understandable in that sense. The Russian one, I think, is harder to understand because by common consent, Bakhmut itself, even the surrounding higher ground, is not a vitally strategically important place. And therefore, to sacrifice huge numbers of casualties in order to try and take it as they have over several months seems like an utterly futile waste of people. Now, as we know, they've tried different approaches there and they've tried moving forward with these, uh, what in World War II terms you'd call penal battalions of freed convicts under the Wagner uh, mercenary company. And they've also tried with more conventional units, the more um, normal spearhead type units like naval infantry and airborne. And they've, they've not achieved great results with either. And they've had big casualties with both types of unit. So I've come to the view that the aim of Russian attritional warfare is obviously there is a defensive aim in, in trying not to concede more of the territory they've occupied. But my sense is that strategically its purpose is to try and wear down the Ukrainians, even accepting that they're causing far fewer casualties than the Ukrainians are to them, and to literally trade the bodies of Russians for the shells and missiles that the West has provided in the hope that the Western-supplied munitions will run low before Russia runs low on cannon fodder. There is a political danger in all this, isn't there, Mark? I mean, we all know that Russia has a history of being profligate with its soldiers' lives. But there must surely come a point uh, when even the Russians feel, the soldiers, that is, feel that they've had enough. And we're already seeing reports of small-scale mutinies around the place. Are you getting any sort of vibe that a collapse might be on the horizon? Um well, I think what, what we've seen on social media channels like Telegram is quite a lot of these almost, uh, you know, you might call them petitions from disgruntled soldiers in video form. Groups of soldiers standing around, often with their faces masked, saying, uh, you know, we, <laughs> we've had a terrible time. We've been cruelly used. Uh, you know, we've not been given any ammunition, that kind of thing. So that that certainly exists in the Russian army in terms of evidence of disquiet and disillusionment with the way the campaign is being raised. That said, similar videos exist in the Ukrainian army as well. And there's a, an interesting case that's popped up in the last few days of a Ukrainian battalion commander who expressed his unhappiness to a reporter from the Washington Post about lack of ammunition, heavy casualties, all things that we understand from those 
Russian telegram videos are, are common uh, grievances on the Russian side of the lines. But hearing a surprisingly similar set of grievances from this Ukrainian battalion commander, who we now understand is facing some disciplinary process for having spoken to the Washington Post. And this has touched off a bit of a debate in Ukraine among uh, army officers about whether dissent or or views that are not helpful to the high command are being stifled and whether the Ukrainian army is responding well enough to internal critiques of how how they mount their operations. So I think it's fair to say that this attritional period over the winter, the last few months, has caused much greater casualties on the Russian side. But the ones that have been taken by Ukrainian units have touched off uh, quite a bit of soul searching and questioning of whether their strategy is right and whether the units that have been uh, committed, particularly, you know, as we're discussing in the area of Bakhmut, have been committed there in a sort of grim sense as placeholders uh, to soak up punishment and soak up uh, attacks and attrite these Russian uh, storm units like airborne naval infantry and Wagner and grind them down, uh, which is clearly, as we know, I mean, one could think back to things like the battles around Caen in the in the Normandy breakout in 1944, and which was said by Monty to be, you know, taking the punishment while the Americans got ready to break out. But, you know, that is quite understandably a very unpopular position to be in if you're commanding those units and and a challenging position to be in, um, even if uh, I think it's fair to say there's no chance of the units uh, on the Ukrainian side breaking in that sense. Although that, I'll, I'll just caveat that slightly, that Ukrainian commander who, who gave the interview to the Washington Post did describe a battle several months ago when, when his soldiers had broken and run. So, I mean, who can see those pictures of the moonscapes and the trenches and the mud and, and the artillery barrages without feeling utter dread and despair at what it must be like to be there. I don't think you have to have very developed gifts of empathy to imagine yourself in that situation and realise how dreadful it must be. This, of course, is all to a purpose. Uh, that's how it's presented by the Ukrainians, i.e. it's the prelude to a counteroffensive in the coming weeks or months that will break the deadlock and bring an end to the war. You're a former tank officer, Mark. Can you tell us what you think the Western main battle tanks that are coming the Ukrainians' way will do uh, to improve uh, their chances of success? Well, um, I think, you know, we've seen in Ukraine, as as we've seen in a, in a couple of other recent conflicts, like the one in Nagorno-Karabakh in, in the Caucasus, a lot of early prediction that, you know, it, it, it's a sort of death knell for the tank. And now we, we see tanks being painted as, as the great hope for, um, for these counteroffensives, as you say, by the Ukrainians, and, and that the supply of such vehicles and the other forms of heavy armoured vehicles, so infantry-carrying vehicles like the Bradley and the Marder, which are also being supplied right now. And we know that Ukrainian battalions are training on these American Bradleys, presumably to be the spearhead of this counteroffensive, these have suddenly become a hope. Well, in them rests the hopes, as it did in 1917, 
when the tanks were first introduced on a large scale on the Western Front battlefield, that these might break the deadlock. I think it's quite possible. Uh, and some people have said, well, you know, it may not be the leopards as such or the challengers. It, it may be more these infantry fighting vehicles that are being supplied in larger numbers and, you know, will allow you to take Ukrainian infantry forward with a large degree of protection from, from all the artillery we've been talking about, all those uh, shell splinters, the fragments, the shrapnel that comes when, when artillery shells explode nearby are very, very unlikely to harm soldiers who are being transported in those vehicles. Of course, an, an anti-tank missile will do it, but not artillery, which, uh, as we've been discussing, is is of supreme importance in this conflict. So can they do it with these heavy armoured forces? I think they can certainly make some gains, um, and they're clearly pinning enormous hopes on that. I think we will see. We will see Leopard 2s and, and, and Bradleys being knocked out by Russian anti-tank missiles. I mean, quite a few, a couple of dozen of the modern 155mm howitzers, for example, that were supplied last summer by the Americans and others to the Ukrainians, we now know have been destroyed uh, by Russian counter-battery fire. So these armoured vehicles will be knocked out. The question is, what will they gain before the number of vehicles that have either uh, broken down or been knocked out becomes really significant and the units that have them become ineffective. Personally, I, I think what they're likely to gain will be uh, of tactical significance. So, you know, to move forward 10 kilometres here or maybe similar to the to the uh, advances, quite impressive advances we saw in the late summer by the Ukrainians around Izum, where they did precipitate a kind of local collapse by the Russian forces. But will it be enough to get them down to the Sea of Azov, you know, to strike southwards and cut the Russians in two, if indeed that is their strategic objective? I don't know. To broaden out the picture a bit, Mark, how do you think this conflict has changed the nature of modern warfare? Not long ago, a conflict of this sort was not at all what the experts were predicting, was it? We were supposed to be in an era of asymmetrical warfare. But here we are in a situation that would in many ways be familiar to a veteran of World War II. Of course, technology has had its effect. But what do you think Ukraine tells us about the direction of warfare is going in? Um, I mean, it's not a bad idea for us to sort of segue from this uh, thought about armoured vehicles. And, you know, for example... Are tanks now redundant? Uh, and I think that even being an ex-tank guy, I don't think one should underestimate the scale of the challenge now to trying to use armoured forces to achieve great results, as we've just been discussing, to achieve breakthroughs. It, it's, it's going to be very, very challenging. And I think even more than that, in terms of Western armed forces and their structure, I think people are underestimating the degree to which manned combat aircraft have been really shown up by this conflict. We know that since a few weeks into the war, when the Russians lost quite a few of them, they've really not flown far beyond their front line. In other words, they're flying manned fighter missions to try and support their ground troops when they're under pressure or when they're attacking. Um, the things that hit the power stations in Kiev or Zaporizhia or Dnipro or wherever, are, of course, missiles uh, of various kinds. And that seems to have been the Russian decision to use cruise missiles and drones 
to attack those in-depth targets, not to risk manned aircraft. And we can see from what's happened that helicopters and manned jet aircraft have become extremely vulnerable in places where there are significant amounts of air defense. It tends to be missiles, but it, it can be guns as well on the ground, able to shoot them down. I think that's, that is one of the really big takeaways for Western armed forces, trying to work out how they should structure themselves, where they should invest their money, the so-called sunrise capabilities rather than the sunset ones. And those questions, I think, are linked, you know, the future of the tank, the future of the manned uh, or crewed, I suppose I should say, combat aircraft, and the question of this great power we've seen of artillery is linked. Now, what, what do I mean by that? In what sense are they linked? I think that the growing availability of sensors, drones, electronic sensors that pick up, you know, uh, radio communications or even people's cell phones, the full gamut of it is creating what some call the transparent battlefield. You know, the UK having invested uh, three and a half billion in each of its uh, new aircraft carriers must be asking itself the question, well, if the Russian cruiser Moskova was as easy to find and sink as it was, and indeed some of the commercially available satellite imagery, you, you will see the Queen Elizabeth at sea on that commercially available imagery, let alone the stuff the military have. Uh, all of this is creating, is making it much harder to hide anything. So that phenomenon we were talking about, the power of artillery in, in creating this stalemate in the Donbass, is completely and inextricably linked to the inability to gain surprise. So, so uh, you know, they'll see you coming, as it were, even if you're on the reverse slope of a great long ridge somewhere near Kramatorsk or somewhere like that. The other side will see you coming and they will see you concentrating your forces there in order to make a breakthrough. And the most responsive way to deal with that is with artillery, of course, uh, because your vehicles might trundle along at 20 miles per hour, but the shell fire that can be drawn from batteries that might be across a, a 50 kilometer arc of your front line can be concentrated in seconds. That's the biggest single thing, I think. It's the degree to which the techniques we saw in the so-called war on terror, you know, the, the special operations in Iraq and Afghanistan, to fuse together the different information sources, literally from human spies to the cell phones in people's pockets to the feeds from drones showing people gathering to carry out an attack. All of those sensor feeds and types of intelligence can be fused with increasing speed and fidelity. And that's created, as I said, the so-called transparent battlefield question. And I think it makes it extremely hard to bring together any kind of critical mass in order to achieve results. I mean, I, I saw some fascinating uh, material uh, late last summer when the Ukrainians were making gains around Kherson, where I don't know if you saw it, Patrick, where they tried to use uh, what they called light brigades. Now, these were equipped with Humvees. They were light infantry equipped with Humvees and one or two other types of, of vehicle and even just pickups that had been bought for the Ukrainian army. And essentially, their tactic was a cavalry charge. They were trying to cover the ground between the Ukrainian lines 
and the Russian ones in order to overwhelm the Russian defences and concentrate quickly enough to avoid being hammered by Russian artillery by just driving very, very far. Now, whether that provides a model that can be applied more generally on battlefields, I'm not sure. But I think in one or two places, that tactical model certainly served the Ukrainians well. It's the case, though, that, you know, for example, in this mud, you cannot drive those vehicles quickly through muddy fields. They will get stuck uh, or at least drive very, very slowly in order to avoid getting stuck. So those are the challenges, I think. Uh, you know, the so-called uh, kill chain of the uh, Iraq and Afghanistan campaigns of gathering the intelligence, actioning the forces to go and do something about it, and then harvesting the intelligence you got when you stormed an al-Qaeda stronghold or a bomb factory or something like that. Applying that on the kind of uh, industrial peer-to-peer warfare level has been the thing that has really, well, it's resulted in these enormous casualties, enormous damage to to, to the fabric of Ukraine. You know, we've all seen the shelled cities and the destroyed neighbourhoods. And it's a level of uh, destruction and violence which I think a lot of people in, in, in Western armed forces in NATO had just assumed would not be there if they had to go to war again, that things would be more contained, that it wouldn't be such a, a level of violence, and that sustaining that level of violence uh, in terms of people, ammunition, vehicles, uh, wouldn't become such a challenge as it clearly has to to Ukraine, you know, sucking sucking the kind of supplies out of you know, a large alliance like NATO in order to keep its war going. Mark, that was brilliant. A real eye-opener for us and our listeners. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me, Patrick. What a brilliant interview, Patrick. Really one of the best we've had. So many interesting points Mark makes because he's got this kind of, you know, as we explained at the beginning, this, this is such a broad sort of remit, a war reporter, soldier himself, but also someone who looks at history. And I think the fact that we can look back at the current war with a historian's lens really does give us insight. And, and Mark proves that. I love this point about Hostomel, you know, the, the attempt to air assault in with helicopters, 450 guys on the ground. And the fact that they did actually capture it, which, uh, you know, we didn't make clear when we first spoke about this right in episode one. But the issue you've got when you capture something is you need to be able to hold it for long enough for the ground forces to get there. Uh, This was the big problem, of course, with Operation Market Garden. And yet by the end of the Second World War, to Mark's point, British paratroopers and airborne, I've got my own airborne book coming out next year sky warriors had realized you you need the distance between the rescuing force and the and the coup de main force that's the airborne force not to be too great uh, so that they can get there in time uh you know in other words reduce the distance they need to go and that's exactly what they do with operation varsity uh, the jumping over the rhine it does uh, reinforce the point that the basics of, of modern warfare, or modern land warfare, conventional warfare, do remain remarkably unchanged. The point he makes about artillery in this war is still the big killer, just as it was in the First World War, and has forced the troops into what he memorably describes as a troglodyte existence. And the, the film we've seen coming out of the, the Bakhmut Front really does bring this home very forcibly, people scurrying down you know, trenches, ankle, indeed knee-deep in mud, 
and and then ducking into a a dugout, uh, you know, made as comfortable as it can be in the circumstances. It's all terribly reminiscent of the Western Front. Yeah, you know, the question about Bakhmut was really interesting. We've been speculating about this, Patrick, for the last few weeks. And I think Mark adds a really interesting insight into this. So on the uh, Ukrainian side, he, you know, he puts forward the possibility, which was reinforced, I think, by the interview with the battalion commander last week, which he also mentioned, that actually uh, the Ukrainians have been using their so-called hard luck forces, their territorials, you know, not their best troops, while they prepare those troops for the for the counteroffensive. He said interesting things about that too. The Russians, on the other hand, uh, have accepted or are accepting heavier casualties because they're fighting attritional warfare, literally trading the bodies of, of Russians for Western munitions. I mean, what a wonderful metaphor, but also what a grim metaphor that is. Yeah, and of course, uh, that analysis, Russian analysis, will be helped by the noises coming out of the Republican candidates in America. The two, you know, Don and Ron, are both kind of uh, singing from the same uh, hymn sheet, aren't they, on this? Um, Trump and DeSantis trying to outdo each other in isolationism, really, uh, going back to the old American view that American interests come first. And it would seem that for both of them, that doesn't include supporting freedom and democracy overseas. So that is a worrying development. Just on that thing you mentioned about the battalion commander's interview, Saul, I think we're going to see more of this, don't you? There more kind of sounds of dissonance coming out of the Ukrainian ranks. Uh, I think you know this is a kind of normal and healthy thing. It's, it's not a sign of weakness in, in, in a way. It's a sign of strength. If you look back at the British newspapers in the Second World War, uh, they were full of criticisms and debates about whether, you know, the strategy was correct, even the performance of commanders. So they've kept a lid on it thus far, but I'm not sure how much longer that's going to go on for. No, exactly right. And, um, you know, First World War, very much, uh, as much as they could keep quiet, they did. They kept a very tight grip on the press, as you know, Patrick, um, probably a similar sort of thing in the Falklands, actually. But of course, a, a debate is important. Um, and people do need to let off steam. And they also need to know they're being listened to. No one wants to be considered, even on the Ukrainian side, as cannon fodder. And that's what Mark's suggesting. There are some, inevitably. It may be for a good reason. Uh, and it's all going to depend, going back to your point about the Republicans, now it's a race against time. It's all going to depend uh, to a certain extent, on the success of the coming counteroffensive. So Mark's point about that's really interesting, which is uh, it may not be tanks, main battle tanks, that are going to play the biggest role. It may be armoured fighting vehicles like the Bradleys and the Marders, because, as he points out, they can allow you to come forward even uh, with a, a lot of artillery fire because they'll protect you from that artillery fire anti-tank missiles, different kettle of fish. But of course, the main threat when you're moving over distance is artillery fire because it can come from such a long distance away. So will that be a, a success? Well, he doesn't know. And of course, he'd be a fool to make a really firm prediction. He does think the Ukrainians are going to make some gains, but but they'll be more tactical than strategic. Yes, very uh, interesting observation about the transparent battlefield and the way that you know both sides can see pretty much when the other is forming up you know, all the indicators of a forthcoming big push. And then, you know, interestingly mentioned these these light uh, brigade units that uh, he witnessed earlier on in the war, I think in the summer. Um, and this may be the, the way things are going to move, having, you know, fast-moving forces that can 
zip around and actually strike very much like kind of blitzkrieg, I suppose, and try and overcome this problem that, you know, as soon as you you actually get spotted, you're in danger of this sort of triangulation of uh, incoming uh, artillery in its various forms, which could sort of actually nip the thing in the bud, stop you before you've even started. So, you know, that, that could be something to look out for in the future. My one point of contention, I have to say, Patrick, with Mark's assessment is that he uh, makes it seem like the transparent battlefield is going to be equal on both sides. I don't believe it is. I mean, I take his point. We're heading in that direction. But I think that the Ukrainians have a much better ability because of the support from Western intelligence, uh, Western satellites and Western AI, that they really can see what's going on on the battlefield. And, and you suspect the Russians don't have anything like the same view over the other side of the hill, as Wellington would have put it, as the Ukrainians. So we will see in the coming months whether this is going to make a big difference or not. Absolutely. Well, that's enough from us. Uh, Do join us on Friday when we'll be digging into all the latest news, analysing it and answering listeners' questions. Thanks a lot and goodbye. Goodbye.